Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to the Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's BH Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Dr. Liam Hodgkinson. After completing his PhD in 2019, Liam went to the US to take up a position as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, and the International Computer Science Institute. Liam's research interests are mainly in the areas of probability and stochastic processes. His current work is primarily in analytical probability theory and its applications to probabilistic machine learning. In 2018, Liam was awarded a Springer Best Poster Prize at the 40th Conference on Stochastic Processes and Their Applications. Liam jointly won the BH Norman Prize in 2018 while he was a PhD student at the University of Queensland, working under the supervision of Phil Pollitt. So, Liam, what do you remember of your Norman Prize-winning talk? So, I remember, yeah, it was it was in uh, 2018. So, it was the third year of my PhD, and I'd given two talks at Austin Mess in the previous years before. Uh, and, you know, being a sort of competitive guy, and I, I generally enjoy speaking. Uh, I put a lot of effort into trying to get those talks, um, you know, to, to go well. Um, and they, they didn't go over very well, those ones. Um, so I came into, um, you know, this, this last year of Ostemes, um, you know, and I guess by then I'd sort of, uh, given up on, I guess, going for the, the prize. I was just thinking to myself, well, you know, I just want to give a talk that, um, you know, I can enjoy. Because that was your third time at Austin Mass as a yes. PhD. You've gone every year yes. in your PhD, and you also gave a talk every year. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And and so for this, yeah, for this last one, um, I had I'd done a talk. Uh, that, you know, it was it was a brief five minute talk at an annual retreat for the uh, ASEMS annual retreat. So this is the ARC Center of Excellence for Maths and Statistics that I was a part of at the time. And for this five minute talk, again, it was, it was a situation where it was just something that I'd wanted to, uh, have fun with. So, you know, I, I put together a talk that was very snappy. Slides were short and to the point, lots of pictures, put in a few jokes and just sort of have fun with it. And that one went over surprisingly well, which I was actually a little upset by because, um, you know, there are other talks where I put a lot of effort into hadn't gone so well. And, um, and so I, when I came into my Austin mess talk in 2018 with this attitude, you know, I'm not going to win the prize. I'm just going to have fun. Uh, you know, crack a few jokes. Um, you know, and, and I spoke about essentially a, an artifact of some of our work. It wasn't actually, you know, the main component of our work. We'd done a lot of sort of ecological modeling uh, type of results. And, you know, we'd done a, a fair amount of a fairly hefty analysis there. 
But when I went into my talk, I just thought, hey, we've got this fun little, this fun little corollary, this fun little artifact that we got. So I'll, sp I'll speak on that. I gave the talk. People seemed to enjoy it. I got a lot of people afterwards saying that you know, they thought it was really, really good, which again, sort of upset me because it was, I, I treated it a bit more casually than I had some of my other talks before. Uh, and when I spoke with Samuel Cohen, who was one of the previous Neumann Prize winners who was there, um, you know, he complimented me on the talk and said that he, he really enjoyed it. And I, you know, I mentioned to him, well, I'm, I'm surprised because I guess with this one, I just went into it with the perspective of trying to make it a, a fun talk for myself, you know, rather than sort of discussing a lot of my work in detail. Uh, and he said, well, that's, that's exactly what you should do. <laughs> that's, that's what makes a good talk is if, if you're enjoying it, then, um, then the audience is likely to enjoy it too. And yeah, so I guess. So that, that's, that was kind of my experience with it was, um, yeah, just that I, I had fun with, um, with the talk and, and by doing so, it seemed to go a lot better than I'd expected. <laughs> so do you think that's the secret then? Do you think that's what you'd recommend to people to not worry so much and just enjoy it? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, I've mentioned to this to people ever since, and I think, um, I try to go into talks with this attitude and ever since I know, oh, well, that talk didn't go so well because I, I didn't enjoy giving that. Uh, so I don't expect people necessarily might enjoy it much either. But, uh, you know, the ones that if I prepare it in advance for going, you know, I'm determined that I'm going to give almost a, a routine where I, I just enjoy myself, um, you know, convey things that I think are cool. I think are useful, then that, that seems to, you know, build up excitement and interest. And I think, yeah, that is kind of what I see as the secret for giving a good talk or one of them anyway. <laughs> so when you found out that you won, were you really surprised and what was going through your mind? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was very shocked actually. So they announced it at, um, at the dinner, um, the, the conference dinner. And I remember that I was sitting at um, my seat and I wasn't really paying attention <laughs> to the announcements because I was certain that I wasn't you know, going to win. Um, I was just sort of chatting under my breath with some of the people, you know, the people next to me. And then all of a sudden they said, hey, you got, you got up there, you won. I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and I suppose, yeah, my... It, yeah, it was, I was extremely shocked. Um, and I think after that I was, yeah, feeling, you know, elated, but also <laughs> a little upset. Like, oh, of course, the one that I put, you know, that I didn't go all out and try to cram as much stuff in as I could was the one that turned out best. But, you know, that's, that, that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> that's interesting because I don't think I've met a Neumann winner yet who expected to win or wasn't shocked that they won. And, <laughs> and the thing is, on your point of like, oh, the one talk that you thought wasn't going to win, if at all, if ever, you know, was the one that won. I mean, there are times when I wonder, like, like if I ever got the Neumann Prize, it would have been something on research because my talk wasn't about my research. And yeah, sometimes I think, 
I, I have that shared experience of like the one talk that I think I have no chance at is the one talk that I actually want. <laughs> you are arguably the most statistical of all Neumann winners. I'm, def- I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later on. But do you think that it's more difficult to talk about statistics at the OSMS meeting? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think that perhaps... Um, people in statistics and, and I guess applied maths, uh, more generally, we recognize that we have, I guess, a handicap. So in a sense, because we know that our work is applied, it's a lot easier to motivate than it might be for a more pure talk, um, or something like that, where, you know, if, if you're asked to give a three minute thesis on, you know, something complicated like algebraic topology, you know, it, 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 it's probably the case that, uh, you go into it going, all right, well, uh, I need to, you know, make sure to think about how I'm going to boil this down in a way that's going to be understandable to people. I mean, obviously there are people that don't care and they just let rip, but you know, I, and I think that in, more applied areas, it's it's perhaps too easy to give a talk that you think that people will at least be able to follow, um, that it is too tempting to just go, okay, well, I'm just going to show everything I got. And I'd say that I think there's a lot of good speakers in, uh, in statistics and in, in applied maths and um, in the probability session, I remember seeing some good talks there, but I, yeah, I think perhaps that if, um, people are looking for more standout talks, you know, they got, they're going to highlight ones that are, that are for people who have gone, well, maybe the extra mile or did something out of left field. Like I feel, uh, I might have done given that was <laughs> Yeah, uh, I feel like I gave more of a comedy routine than a talk or something. <laughs> well, I, I think it was somewhat, um, somewhat informative. But yeah, I, I think I think that's that's possibly why um, that maybe for applied areas, um, yeah, it's it's too easy to fall back on uh, on things. The, the Norman Prize has gotten more and more competitive as the years go by because more students come to the conference. The year that of your prize, when the conference was in at the University of Adelaide, and there were sixty-one talks, and I'm your one of your immediate successors, and my year there were seventy talks. I'm interested to know what was the reaction like from, say, your supervisor or the people in your research area, uh, research group back at the University of Queensland. The last time that someone from UQ won was in the year two thousand. It was eighteen years before. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I think it was. Um, so I, I I won't say that. Um, <laughs> perhaps uh, not being so humble here, but I, I won't say that people were necessarily surprised by it. I mean, I was. <laughs> uh, pe- people around but me. I got that too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Everyone who congratulated me started with "I'm not surprised." They, like, do you mean you're not surprised? <laughs> I mean, it feels it feels like such a you know big accomplishment. It's like, oh yeah, now nah, he, of course he got it. No, but I think, 
I, I, I feel like I've, you know, I, that I, I do give good talks generally speaking, but um, I know that for my, um, my supervisor, he, he was, he was very pleased um, to hear it because he puts a lot of emphasis on giving good presentations as being an important part of the academic uh, process. And yeah, I, but <laughs> I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I got, I got a lot of you know, congratulations and, uh, and such from, and some attention <laughs> from, um, you know, the academics within our school, um, yeah, which, which was nice, but yeah, that, it, <laughs> yeah, did get that impression that they weren't so surprised. <laughs> So you did a Bachelor of Science majoring in mathematics at the University of Queensland. Why did you choose to do that, of all things? Um, so I guess, um, so at UQ we had this weird situation where they didn't have a Bachelor of Mathematics at the time. So I, I was dead set to go into, into maths when I went into uni, and that was the route that was uh, required. As for why I wanted to go into mathematics, um, I actually started out, um, I, I was, I've always been kind of a computer nerd growing up. And so I, I got into you know, programming uh, and through programming, I came to get, be very interested in, in modeling um, physical uh, phenomena. Uh, and from there, I realized, well, this requires maths. And I became interested in maths and it sort of, you know, snowballed uh, from there. Yeah. So then, but, and I think though that I might've gone back and forth a bit in the sense that I, I was once, you know, very, very applied. And then I was interested in doing pure maths and I went through pure maths for a while during my undergraduate degree. And then I became more applied again uh, as I went on. So when you got to honors, I think for most honor students, that's when we really have to decide or sort of for the first time have to decide what area of maths we'd like to specialize in. And Phil Pollitt was your honor supervisor. Why did you decide to go with him? Yeah, so I went through my undergraduate degree. I, I went pretty pure all the way through uh, my undergraduate degree. So I, so I, I took... Um, I, I still stuck to the undergraduate courses and I did want to make sure that I had some breadth, but the ones that I enjoyed most were, were the more pure, uh, intense sort of courses. And when it came time to choose my honor supervisor, um, I knew that I didn't want to go into geometry. Unfortunately, it was, it was one of those things that I was never very good at and our school had you know, a fairly, you know, most, most of the uh, pure analysis guys tended to focus on geometry. So I thought about my alternatives and I remembered that because I'd taken so many different types of courses throughout my degree, one of the ones that stood out was uh, a third year probability course, uh, which was the one that my honor supervisor, Phil Pollitt, had taught. And I remember it standing out because it was brutally hard. 
<laughs> it it was I, I would say you know, even though I'd taken a lot of these other uh, pure maths courses that people might think is having more you know being more challenging. Um, I remember that course as being the hardest one of my entire degree. And to me, that was kind of attractive. In this, And I remember that when I was taking that course, he made a point of saying, you know, while this discipline is applied, it's really critical that we are able to rely on pure maths to provide rigor, uh, because that's what gives this discipline power. And I thought that idea was very attractive, this idea that by going into uh, probability, a, a kind of more applied discipline, I was still able to take things that I'd learned in more pure mathematics and, and channel it um, through, you know, in, into that, into my work. Um, and that's kind of been my mindset ever since uh, and why I've, I've kind of enjoyed doing uh, your probability theory so much. Yeah, that's interesting. If we look at, say, your publication record or you know, the area of research that you work in, I think a maths department would put you in the statistics department. Yes. But, but when I look at the stuff that you've done, I don't think it reflects sort of the typical image of what a statistician does mm. because you don't really work with data. Like you're not yes. you know, collecting data and then you know, trying to find out what the mean is or or the yeah. things that we would traditionally associate with a statistician, right? And you talked there about how you really liked how, although it's very applied, you know, it's in some sense very pure as well. I mean, if someone sort of asked you if you were a pure mathematician, applied mathematician, or a statistician, like, what would you say and why would you classify yourself as that? Yeah, I, I think it's getting harder as time goes on because I think that the work that I'm, that I've, do more and more. I think people would construe as being more applied, but I always like to bring in, um, you make sure that everything is rooted in tools and techniques that come from pure mathematics. So I, I think when people ask me, I guess, um, to, to someone who's very applied, I seem like a pure mathematician to someone who's pure. I seem like I'm applied. So I guess I just sort of answer with, well, um, you know, I, I consider myself a mathematician and then people ask, well, you know, are you also a statistician because you do these you know, statistical things? And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, I don't, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't work with data per se, but, um, a lot of more modern things that are coming about with statistics, um, you know, uh, is theory in the absence of data as well, you know, tools to, for people to be able to uh, apply when they have data. So honestly, I have no idea what I am anymore, <laughs> but I think okay. I've always really have had a, a love for mathematics, uh, perhaps more so than I think um, what people traditionally think of, of statistics um, or you know, any of the other sciences even. Yeah, I, I also feel like I'm non-identifying in the <laughs> sense that I'm working on problems which people traditionally associate to be areas of pure mathematics, but then I approach them with very statistical tools. 
So maybe to get a better understanding of why you feel like the work that you do isn't very easily classified into one of those three, we should probably ask you a bit about what your research is actually about. And the way I like to phrase this question is if not you, but if I were talking to a random person at the pub and they asked me, what does Liam do? What is Liam's research about? What should I tell them? Yeah. <laughs> so my, my current title is I, I say that I work in uh, probabilistic machine learning. Um, so I currently work at, I guess, something of, of an intersection between probability theory and using probabilistic tools uh, with data science, which is itself kind of a, a conglomerate of statistics and uh, computer science. And I guess what I work on now is, um, you know, with with this, uh, I, I guess you call it uh, an AI boom. I'm I'm interested in providing a little bit of mathematical rigor uh, to some of the heuristics that's used there, uh, but also I, I guess seeing whether you know ideas that consider to be uh, perhaps maybe at the forefront of pure probability theory things that I've been able to read up on and, and discuss with uh, people over the years from my time um, you know, as, a, as a PhD student can be applied uh, in this discipline, which I would say is very, very applied now. Yeah, so I, I think that, yeah, so that, that's generally speaking what I do. I, uh, I work in br bringing a little bit of mathematical rigor into uh, the study of AI as, as people talk about it nowadays. That's something I want to pick on a bit more. You say bringing mathematical rigor. And what do you mean by that? I mean, I don't think a lot of people really understand what mathematical rigor is when we say that. And why is it important for AI, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's really important uh, across the sciences. What it means to me is that uh, we often have these ideas, these you know, intuition about how things uh, should operate in the world. Uh, and when people talk about them in the sciences, and this is true in computer science as well. I mean, there are, there are many other people that do very rigorous work in computer science, but there still is um, a tendency for people to, to discuss these ideas with a degree of uh, hand waviness, for lack of a better word. These are things that I think people can sort of understand uh, because, you know, and they're written in English words. Um, but the problem is that when we have an idea like that, it's, it's very hard to try and establish something concrete with that. Some people have wonderful intuition that they know immediately, okay, I can take that and I can infer things from that. But I think for a lot of people... That's more difficult without having a very logical set of steps that everyone can agree is universally true. So the idea with maths is you go, okay, well, we can provide you know, for any one of these concepts, we can boil it down into a, a very fixed terminology. Uh, and from that terminology, we've abstracted the problem. We can then apply known ideas, things that people have uh, come up with for thousands of years, 
And we're able to do that because we've removed all the other sort of uh, nuances of the problem. We've distilled it down to that basic idea that people like to talk about, you know, um, when they explain these things. And to me, maths is about that distillation and then about making sure that you have rigor in the sense that you stick in the mathematical, stick to the mathematical formulation and you evolve step by step towards drawing conclusions. And from there you can say, hey, this is what your argument, you know, which was, you know, uh, made a lot of sense to you, but maybe not to other people. We can now put the, that whole argument in a series of steps that everyone can agree upon and is now fact. So that sounds a bit scary, actually, because what I'm getting from that is that there's a lot of technology out there for which we have hand-waved and we don't actually know that this works. It's like the, the rigor, like you described, is almost like an afterthought. Yeah. I mean, that sounds a bit dangerous to me. Oh, yeah. It's... um. <laughs> yeah. Or well, mind you, I think a lot of that doesn't sound dangerous to a lot of people as well. Yeah, but I, I no, I think I think you're right. I think that to us it's a scary thought. I think to a lot of other people, um, it it perhaps you know, well they go, oh well, if it works, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, that's good enough for me, and that that's fair. But I think that. There is this whole debate about the ethics that surround, you know, um, machine learning now, uh, around the fact that we don't really have this nice interpretability. We have a lot of heuristics that we don't really understand, and you know, from that, there are some dangers associated with that. Yeah, and, and this is this is why there are, uh, you know, there are a number of concerns with you know adopting. Uh, these kinds of ideas. But I, I think actually um, a lot of the sciences have, have kind of been doing this for a long, a long time now. Um, so it, it's, it, I think it's kind of how the way it works is that, and, and I do see this as something of a beautiful thing now is that um, in the sciences, people have this wonderful intuition that allows them to zoom ahead and be able to do experiments to, um, get results and some and some understanding to confirm their intuitions to them. You know, and then you can formulate models and, and ideas on how this would be the case. And your know, maths has kind of trailed behind because forming rigorous arguments is hard, <laughs> but it's very powerful because we can say, well, these things that people have maybe accepted for a long time, now we can really formulate it in a way that it's, well, you know, rigorous, as I said, it's very lo- logically consistent, and we can draw a lot of very concrete conclusions uh, from that. Um, and that's that's sort of how it works: is that you know we have to understand that um, initial discoveries are probably not going to be as concrete, but with you know more and more confirmation of those ideas, eventually we can come together and. And maybe make some kind of model or proof that sets some of these ideas in stone. So, do you think then we sort of need to regulate? Say, you know, people are not allowed to use certain heuristics in machine learning until we have rigorous proofs for them. Like, do you think that's an appropriate step? I think that um, 
No, I, I think that it's, it's the job of the practitioner, um, I think, to zoom ahead and always be thinking about the next step. And yes, there's always going to be some dangers in that, but I think that it's, it's to our uh, benefit to perhaps accept some of those risks, knowing, of course, that there are risks, I think is the key thing. And then you know, making sure, and, and this is the important bit that we do event, you know, at some point, and ideally as quickly as possible, try and come up with a more rigorous understanding. And I say this because I think the other way around where we do very theory-focused uh, approach and we rely exclusively on the, on the maths and what it gives us going forward um, that that approach has been taken was taken in the past, and it, it also uh, revealed a few problems. There were things that people thought were very concrete because they'd relied so heavily on a model, and it turned out that their model was not right. So we need this balance. Um, we do need this balance of the of the practitioners who have a good intuition about what's going on with these things. Um, you know, trying new things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and you know, trying to make new ground. And then the theoreticians whose job is to uh, try and establish a bit more rigor to those observations, develop newer and newer models to, uh, you know, to allow for that um, and keep up to date and, and essentially make those ideas in the literature more concrete. And I, I think, yeah, that it, yeah, we need a balance of both of them and not, and, I think one approach alone, uh, I think, is dangerous uh, in applied maths. That resonates with me in the way that like, when I teach first-year statistics at UNSW, we talk a lot about statistical pitfalls. I guess the example that comes to mind is like the famous Monty Hall problem, where like the obvious and intuitive answer is the wrong answer, right? Yes. Like, could you give us an example of something like that in your world, in like your area of research? Because we talk about machine learning and, you know, all those data science buzzwords come back, right? And we think, you know, these days we think people have a bit more of an awareness of how things like AI and machine learning influence our daily lives. Like, do you have an example of like one of the big open problems in that area? Yeah, I think uh, one of the ones that stands out to me is, and I guess it depends on who you ask as to whether or not this seems paradoxical, as it is with all of these things. Right? Some people just have the right intuition. But I think for most people, the thing that's um, probably a bit confusing uh, is that in machine learning, you have this process of, you know, and what a lot of people work with now are these uh, neural networks. Um, and what a lot of people are you're interested in is you got this huge amount of data and you essentially train your model as they call it. So you, you solve essentially this optimization problem, uh, and, you know, try and, um, fit that model as closely as possible to the data. This, this sounds very similar to, you know, what statisticians believe, but, you know, um, computer scientists can think differently in some ways, but, um, the, the, the interesting thing is that um, a lot of people believed that the faster you can train uh, your network or, or perhaps the, um, you know, the more efficiently you can do it, the better 
it could end up being. When in fact, there's nuance to this. There's a lot of factors that go into whether how well these things actually work in practice. Uh, and it's not so simple as just looking at it from this viewpoint of, well, let's try and uh, train it as efficiently as possible. You know, sometimes there's bits where, um, you know, making it take a bit longer, making it explore certain uh, aspects a little longer. Um, these kinds of things can can help. And I guess more classical mathematical theory uh, didn't really account for those possibilities you know, as as much. Um, I'm oversimplifying a bit. <laughs> as with all okay. things, there's a lot of nuance to this. But I think to me, this is um, one of the things where a lot of the heuristics on how to train these uh, these networks, um, I think to a fair few people you talk to seem to fly in the face of what they might have expected to be the case. And we still don't really know why. <laughs> so, like, again, the, these buzzwords like machine learning and AI, they haven't been around for a very long time, right? And it's one of those areas of not just math, but science that is really developing really quickly. Do you think that the kind of work that's being done in this area is going to drastically change, say, in 10 years' time? Yeah, for sure. And I think actually more generally, I think um, with computers you know, coming about and being more accessible, I think a lot of fields in mathematics, both pure and applied, are seeing um, are seeing changes coming from the the presence of of computers, um, and, but I think AI in particular is one of those things that's you know growing at the rate of you know of study into computers and the development of computers itself, which, as we know, is growing at an extremely rapid pace. Yeah, I, I do see um, things that, and this is certainly the case throughout its history. There have been little pockets where People have said, this is the future. This is, uh, you know, this is the future of AI. This is the, you know, the future of computation. And a few years later, people find something else that works better. And then they go, oh, well, no, we were wrong. That's, yeah, that wasn't so interesting. This new thing is now the future. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it changes very rapidly. Um, and, and there is some danger to that as well. I think that computer science may have a bit of a, a PR problem that's kind of different from the opinions people have about maths is that when uh, these big companies are conveying these um, these things to the general public, the general public doesn't necessarily have an understanding of the limitations. And because of that, and this I believe was a big concern of Dijkstra back in the day, uh, the expectations are not being quelled at the same time at the same rate. This is Dijkstra of the famous Dijkstra's algorithm. Yes, that's right. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. He's a famous um, computer scientist who also did a lot of uh, awesome work in, um, in, in graph theory and in algebra and, and developed a number of very important results. He was very much a mathematician. And back in the day, he was very concerned about the direction that uh, computer science was taking uh, in that there was such an enormous hype machine behind it that he feared that that hype would, you know, could swell and essentially devolve the field into some form of alchemy driven purely by 
you know, the, these enormous expectations of the general public uh, that, you know, don't have an understanding of the, of the innards of how these things work uh, and therefore can't, you know, tether their expectations accordingly. Um, there are a lot of people that still feel that way today. You know, so, yeah, which is, again, why I think that, you know, bringing a bit that some of that rigor back, you know, it is, it is important. One thing that I found a bit interesting that you just said was about how computer scientists or people who work in this area have a bit of a PR problem, right? And working in combinatorics, I've gained an appreciation for how we have an advantage in combinatorics that it's a bit easier to explain the problems that we work on. And I've also, through meeting a lot of mathematicians in other areas and through doing this podcast, gained an appreciation that like different areas of maths have different levels of difficulty in explaining it to a lay audience. But you talk about, again, these buzzwords that we we all think you know, they affect our daily lives. We have a better awareness of the fact that they affect our daily lives. But it seems to me like actually maybe it's not so easy to explain the stuff that you do as we might think it is. Where do you feel like it sits on the spectrum? Yeah, I, I think that um, what I do... I, I do consider it to be fairly challenging, but I, I don't think it's perhaps as, as challenging as things that I've seen in, um, you know, in, in other pure maths areas. I think across the board, um, if, if we're talking as far as trying to interest people, um, you know, the general public, you know, explain these things to the general public in a way that they're going to be interested in them. Uh, I think you mentioned... AI to someone and they see all the, you know, um, PR from Google and, you know, these other big tech companies and that's probably enough. Uh, and then from there, you know, you might slowly lose them as you, if you go in more in depth and in, into the, the details. But I think on the other hand with maths, I remember when I was in honors, you know, if, if I talk to someone, it's like, oh, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a mathematician. And they're like, oh, okay, so what do you do? <laughs> what purpose do you so serve? And <laughs> I, I think that um, from that point of view, I think that maths has this kind of inverse problem, which is that there are people that are naturally attracted to um, to the idea of puzzle solving. And you state these problems and they're like, oh, that's, you know, that that's curious. Why why would that be the case? And I think, you know, um, and there's definitely a lot of um interest that comes from that, especially in um in combinatorics, as you say. I think other disciplines in analysis, in topology, in other sort of more complex areas of algebra seem to have it pretty rough where it's uh it, it's quite a bit harder. So I think it's fair to say that what you've described is what you do now may not be most people's typical impressions of what a mathematician or a statistician does. And I was just wondering, say, when you were in high school or before you signed up for a maths degree, did you ever imagine that this was what it was going to be like? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, no, not at all. Um, I think that... When I was in high school, uh, I remember uh, hearing about, and I used to think about maths as 
a way in which you know people develop these uh, tools by mysterious means, and you just sort of apply them to problems. And I guess over time, I've come to appreciate the the art involved with actually um, of problem solving itself in in mathematics about rigor. Um, I think that rigor in the mathematical sense is something that uh, we didn't really get to uh, experience to a large degree in high school. Uh, that came later, and I think that I never imagined how far maths could spread, how, how far math reaching maths was, and how it touches uh, every discipline uh, in some way or another, and how you know, ideas in maths which can come from you know, completely other fields, you know, the study of, of certain kinds of um, puzzles or, you know, or patterns, to put it in, in other areas. Um, I never imagined how those could actually be applied in just so many other, so many other sub-disciplines and in the sciences, how you can use that to infer so many other things just by how abstract maths can be. And yeah, I, I guess I, I was never really aware of the power of mathematics when I was in high school. Um, and that, that's been something that's been pretty awesome to see over the years. So when we were thinking of what we wanted to ask you or what questions or topics we wanted to discuss with you because you were the best Neumann winner to discuss them with, we realized that a question that is often never asked by so many people, especially like students in high school or even a lot of our undergrads, is what is probability? And I don't think there's a better Neumann winner to ask than you. So I, I know this is a very big, deep philosophical question, but how would you respond to that? So actually, um, yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And I think to me, um, I think the best way to explain what probability is, is in a duality with statistics. So I think of statistics as being science that deals with data and it pulls from mathematics. I see probability as being mathematics uh, that tries to give rigor to observations. And that's a very, very general description. Uh, observations in the sense that you'll start with some model view of the world and you have a certain number of outcomes and you have uncertainty there. Uh, so I guess to be more specific, I see probability as making uncertainty rigorous. Uh, and Probability is very, very ma much a mathematical discipline. Um, every aspect of it is rooted in, you know, in mathematical theory, and not. And surprisingly, I think uh, a lot of people assume that you know statistical ideas and and these ideas that come from probability, you know, date back many, many centuries. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that unfortunately. Probability, as I see it, is a field that relies on ideas from maths that were only discovered within the past you know, 100 or so years you know, at its core. 
which which makes it a difficult um, discipline in a sense. But yeah, so I, I guess with you know to explain to a high school student what is probability. Well, I guess it is really the idea of moving from, you know, in math, you start with something and you deduce this directly as a matter of consequence. You now move into a domain where you allow different things to happen potentially. And, and its role, I would say, is that uh, it provides a very, very powerful theory to derive statistical techniques and those in turn form the foundation of what people use in experiments in science um it's like yeah base level (laughs) because when i was growing up one of the things that i always got told and i don't know if this is an experience that many people have is that we always got told that maths is exact maybe these days i would say rigorous like maths is it's always the same you know it's precise it's the furthest thing away from uncertainty or randomness, you know. Yeah. But probability is about uncertainty, right? It's about randomness. And I mean, I think it's pretty evident that you think that probability theory is mathematical, right? Or statistical or, you know, all of those things. But how do you consolidate that? Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> I think that's kind of the magic, isn't it? The fact that... You, there, you start with assumptions which you think are so so loose, so weak. So yeah, everything is so very uncertain, and you can still derive things that you know to be true. You know, and and there are naturally some um, you know some some bits to it that we're taking advantage of. You know, of course, in reality, we can't take infinitely many observations. We can't go for an infinite amount of time. But in probability, we can show that, and, and I think with uh, a number of other uh, analytical disciplines that have stemmed from that since, um, things like dynamical systems and, and other fields like that, you can find order in chaos. The fact that something is chaotic means that it must behave in a certain way. And that, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of what I love about, about probability. And why also there's a lot of things in probability that, yeah, um, people would consider to be unexpected. So do you think there's any like big misconception that, say, students or maybe even the general population may have about probability? So I think that people may view probability and statistics as not being as deep or as rich in mathematical theory as other mathematical disciplines. You know, in, in some ways it's newer, people see it as more applied, but I think actually that you know, the cutting edge in probability theory deals with some pretty intense mathematical concepts there. I think it's not too controversial to say that whether we realize it or not, or no matter who we are, probability does come into play in our everyday lives. Like we subconsciously or otherwise think about probability when we decide to do things in day-to-day life. What I'm interested to know is, as for you, because you work in probability theory, right? And even though it seems like you work in probability theory in a very pure setting, I'm interested to know if being a probability theorist has 
had an impact on your day-to-day life? Like, have you done things differently since you were introduced to probability theory and started doing research on it? Um, <laughs> to be honest, I would say probably not. <laughs> I, I guess the one thing is that it's um, maybe given me a bit of a better understanding of maybe the limitations of scientific procedure that's coming from the statistical perspective, um, you know, and the issues that come with that. So if anything, maybe it's made me a little bit more skeptical, but as far as using probability, you know, to, for, you know, things like card counting or, or these other tricks to deduce, um, you know, if probability will tell you this and that, uh, at, at the end of the day, I think that, um, we use probability theory often to, uh, explain or derive res- results and ideas that other people may have um, come up with or have observed um, in other settings. Uh, I think people in fields like operations research, you know, and, and things like that, you know, that that rely on probability in other ways, uh, will develop um, new, new theories and conditions for things uh, on how to you know Im- implement those in the real world. But I guess for me, it's it's the stuff that I do is all you know has always been about trying to better explain what we already see. So from my point of view, I guess no, it hasn't really hasn't really changed many things in uh, in my day to day life. So you haven't suddenly become more risk averse to everything ever since you started your. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, I, I guess if um, if anything. Um, yeah, understanding the limitations of some of these models has made me realize, you know, people say, oh, you know, the probabilistic model says this. And I look at that and go, oh, I don't know. And the, the, you know, what, what assumptions did he have in that? That's, that's a tough area. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess it's, it's made me more, uh, more skeptical, uh, if anything, uh, a little more. Yeah. So do you find like the news is harder to digest you know, now because you see, them say something in the news, you see some statistic in the news and you go, oh, like, I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel actually, um, I, I think with things like the conversation uh, and things like that and people putting more of an emphasis on academic communication that I, I think it's getting a better. Of course, you, you know, you see news articles pop up and they say, oh, study says such and such. You're always going to, yeah. Be like, oh, okay. I, you know, we should probably take a look at the original, you know, study for that. There's probably some issues, or maybe not. Or, but on the other hand, I think that, um, yeah, we, we, I, th- I think overall, um, the academic community, I think, is more aware about its role, uh, and is is actively trying to improve upon explaining these things. So I see it as getting better in some ways. What I think is interesting is that in the mathematics communication space, one of the common things that gets said is like, you use maths in everyday life. And when we give examples of that, we give examples that have more of a probabilistic flavor or more of a statistical flavor. Like we don't tell them like, oh, you use algebra in, like you're subconsciously using algebra and so and so, even though maybe people do subconsciously use algebra or analysis in their everyday life, you know. But the example we always give, more often than not, is 
improbability or probability related. Why do you think that is? I think it's, I mean, I, I think probability is very much a study of of the real world. It's the gateway that I think is, or is at least part of the bridge between pure maths ideas and the real world. Um, there's many components that make up that bridge, but I think that, yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of these you know, examples, I mean, those may be the most natural ones because, you know, maybe they're the most easy to, you know, explain or, but I, I think also that ma- that probability touches so many disciplines of maths. It's all, it's all so interconnected that from any discipline, you can always have some connection to probability and then you can use that as an example. But one of the ones that I always thought was really cute to me, I mean, there are a number of these, but things like the hairy ball theorem or these other geometric concepts that, uh, you know, that, that people might observe. And then you say, you know, this is true. And they go, oh, yeah. And then you say, well, because it's true, it has these consequences. What is the hairy ball theorem? I've never heard of this. Yeah. So it literally says that if you have a, a ball that has hairs on it, you can't comb it in such a way that all the hairs will lie flat. There will always be a tuft. Is this like actual rigorous yeah, yeah. mathematical thing? It sounds like the most unrigorous thing in the world. <laughs> that's that. Well, I mean, you could you can state it in in the sort of mathematical description, but at the end of the day, it's I mean, it's really the same thing. Your hairs become vector fields, and you're based yeah, and it's but but the idea is that you know you can extend that to say well, um, you know, there's many consequences of that that are often surprising. Like, uh, you know, this leads to the fact that we know that on the Earth, there has to be a hurricane of some magnitude at some point on the Earth, you know, or that it leads to fixed point theorems that if you, you know, stir your coffee, you know, you know that there will always be one point, one molecule that didn't go anywhere. I mean, these are sort of weird quirks, but you can you can take it further and further and further and further, and you'll eventually get, come to something that's incredibly useful. But I, I like the Harry Ball theorem because you can say it to you know it's got a cute name, and you can say it to people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you can't do that, yeah, okay." But making it rigorous is is the art of maths itself, and developing consequences from that, yeah. So I want to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, uh, which is to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who. Yeah, so a mathematician is someone who abstracts ideas and builds rigorous sequential theory from it. That's a bit of a boring answer, but... That, this is what I think, that a mathematician really has two main jobs, that you take some idea, you, you distill it into, uh, into some symbology that works for you, and then you make sure that when you're working with that, that you're working in that language, that you maintain absolute rigor. And, uh, and in particular, I guess one thing I should add is that we do this for the sake of, prob- of problem solving. More generally, I guess, you know, one could view a, a mathematician as, you know, a problem solver. Yeah, there's more nuance to that, of course. But yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I see it. 
very special thanks to Liam Hodgkinson for taking the time to chat with us. You can find out more about Liam by visiting his website linked in the show notes. This episode was produced by Alex Su and myself. We'll be back next week with another interview. The Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter at UD underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you, or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own.